Good morning again. We're going to continue in our study in James. He was uh, an apostle, a leader in the early church. He was a pastor writing a letter to a group of people who had uh, faced religious persecution and were now trying to figure out how to live the Christian life in a new environment. So it's a letter that's intensely practical, and it's about how to put Christian faith into action, uh, but it's full of such good advice that even if you don't consider yourself a believer, even if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there's such good advice in here that I believe if you follow it anyway, your life will still be better. Um, So for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I think this is good practical advice for us. Those of you who may not yet be followers of Jesus, it's still good practical advice. Uh, So the question we're going to address is, what do we do when we feel stuck? What do we feel, what do we do when we don't know what to do? Perhaps you've been there. You've you've found yourself at a crossroads and you're asking, well, what do I do next? Maybe that's in school, right? You're trying to decide what your major in college is going to be. And there's lots of interests and lots of things. You've got lots of options. How do I decide what to do next? Maybe it has to do with, with a spouse, right? Or, or, or you know, you're, you're getting engaged or, or, or somebody has proposed or you're thinking about getting married, starting a family. And you're like, well, is this, the, is this the next, is this the best step for me? Is this the right decision for me to make? Maybe you're thinking about having kids and you're like, well, is, is having kids the right thing for me to do, at, for us to do at this particular time uh, in our life? Is this, is this a good time for us? Maybe it's a job, and you're, you know, you, you've had one job, and you have another job opportunity, and, and it seems interesting, but you're like, well, is it, is it really the best thing? Should, should I go through? Should I take this new job? Should I switch careers? Should I go back to school? What do I do? Maybe you're facing uh, a, a diagnosis, um, a medical diagnosis, and, and you're not sure the course of action to take. Do I continue to pursue uh, medical options and medical intervention, or do I do something different? What's the best op- choice now for, for me and for my family? What do I do? So James, addressing this question, he begins in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. He says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... In other words, he says, if any of you don't know what to do, if any of you don't know what to do, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is an important concept in the Bible. Um, there are several books in the Bible known specifically as wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, these are wisdom literature books. They're all about this concept of wisdom. So that, that should lead us to this question. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? We, we use the words wisdom, we use wise, but what does it really mean? Well, biblical wisdom, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, biblical wisdom refers to practical skills, practical skills associated with understanding and living a successful life. Practical skills, right, things that we can put into practice associated with understanding and living a successful life. Uh, if you read through the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, it's full of this kind of wisdom. As a matter of fact, um, I've encouraged folks in the past that if you're looking for wisdom, spend a month reading the book of Proverbs. If there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, if you read one chapter a day, by the end of the month you'll have read the whole book of Proverbs, and it's full of practical wisdom on, on how to live uh, a life that leads to uh, success as opposed to failure. Uh, so here's, here's the sort of the complicated definition from the, the Bible dictionary. Here's my very simple definition. Wisdom is what to do. Wisdom is what to do. In other words, wisdom is more than simply knowledge, 
right? We can have lots of knowledge. We can, we can know lots of information. But if we don't know what to do with that knowledge, if we don't know how to apply that information, we've not yet moved into the category of wisdom. Wisdom is what to do. It's not just what to know. Like you can know that two plus two equals four, but that doesn't really help you live a successful life unless your job is to add up numbers, in which case applying two plus two equals four can be known as wisdom. But, but wisdom is taking what we know, the information that we have, and then putting it into practice and applying it in our life at the right time. That's what wisdom is. So when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he says, if any of you don't know what to do, He's going to tell you what to do if you don't know what to do. So James says, here's what to do if you don't know what to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask. You should ask. Now, those of you who are looking at your Bibles, you know that I've stopped in the middle of a sentence here, right? There are more words that are going to follow this. But I just want to just hang with me for a second and pause here. Uh, especially those of you who, who may not yet be believers in God or followers of Jesus. If you don't know what to do, you should ask. Well, what should I ask? What, what is an appropriate question if I don't know what to do? I'm going to give you one particular option. Here's a question you can ask if you don't know what to do. What is the wise thing to do? In other words, if you don't know what the wise thing to do is, ask yourself the question, what is the wise thing to do? Well, Thomas, isn't that sort of backwards? If I don't know what the wise thing to do is, how can I ask myself what the wise thing to do is and answer what the wise thing to do is if I don't know what the wise thing to do is? Fair question. But my hunch is that most of us, if we stop and we find ourselves facing a crossroad, and we ask this particular question, which, by the way, I didn't come up with this. Right? I, I, I stole this from a, a preacher that I really like, Andy Stanley. He has a whole series on this. What is the wise thing to do? Most of us, if we stop and we ask this question, I think we'll be surprised how often we already know what the answer to that question is. Right? What is the wise thing to do? Maybe for you um, people who are still living with your parents, uh, students or college students, maybe replace wise with what is the thing my parents would tell me to do? Usually there's a little bit of an overlap there with wisdom and what your parents have told you to do. You'll realize that when you become parents. You know, as, since I've become a parent, I've realized that uh, my parents were smarter than I realized. Um, as I've gotten older, my parents have gotten smarter, but they've never changed. Maybe you've heard that before, too. Um, you know, those of you who are married, uh, husbands, what, is, what would my wife tell me to do might be the question to ask. And the, the answer to that it might be the wise. Our, our wives are often the voice of wisdom in our lives. Wives, if you ask that question and it sounds like what your husband would say, well, you, you've scored. Uh, so you should just you know, thank God for that. Um, Anyway, what is the wise thing to do? Now, not, not what is the legal thing to do, right? Because what the legal thing to do, there might be a lot of legal things to do, but may not be wise for you. Uh, what is the acceptable thing to do, right? There might be lots of acceptable things, but what's acceptable may not be the wisest thing to do. Not what is the convenient thing to do, because what's convenient may not be what's wisest in the long term. Not what can I get away with without getting caught, but what is the wise thing to do? And, and my hunch is if you ask yourself this question at moments of indecision, oftentimes you'll find you already know the answer. 
oftentimes you'll find you already know the answer. Now, there's, there's going to be times where you don't. There's going to be times where you find yourself facing a decision, a situation, and you generally don't know, genuinely don't know what to do, and you ask yourself, what is the wise thing to do, and you still don't know the answer. We're going to continue on with what James says here. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask who? God. You should ask God. Here's a translation. If you don't know what to do, James says, you should pray. If you don't know what to do, you should pray. Now, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are already followers of Jesus and believers in God, this sort of seems like a, well, duh, right? right? Because we're, we're, we're so used to talking about praying and say, oh, you know, I'll pray about that, I'll pray for you. How often do we say, I'll pray about that, and then we never pray about that? Guilty sometimes, need to get better, right? Uh, so how often do we actually forget to pray? If I'm honest, I, there's lots of times I go throughout the day and there's things that I should have prayed about, but because I'm in such a hurry, I just I don't take the time to stop and pray the way that I should. And so James says, if you don't know what to do, you should pray. You should pray. Take the time, stop and pray, and ask God his perspective on the situation. Ask for wisdom. Ask for guidance. Now, for... Um, Non-Christians, those of you who may not be believers, my guess is, my hunch is, there are still times where even though you may not consider yourself a believer, you still find yourself praying just in case there's somebody up there listening, right? Uh, Perhaps, you know, it's before that exam that you forgot to study for. God, if you exist... I forgot to study for this test, and if you'll just help me do well on this test, I will, I'll never do whatever again, right? You'll just throw it up there just in case there's somebody listening. Or, or you know, you're, you may not be a believer, but you're on the plane, and you start to feel the shake of the turbulence. You're like, God, I don't know if you're up there, but if you land this plane, I will always go to church, right? You just, I'll start going to church if you, just, if you just get me home. God, just land this plane safely. Right, that, that gas tank is getting real close to the E, and you're on that stretch between Bloomington and Evansville where there's no gas stations, and you're like, God, if you just get my car to the next gas station, I promise I'll always, whatever. Right? There are times that whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, you, you find yourself throwing something out up there just in case there's somebody up there who might hear your question. So, so praying is not just for folks who already believe. Most of us pray anyway. On a more serious note, when we experience some of the tragedies of life, when we have that diagnosis or that sudden loss of a job or loss of a loved one, we find ourselves turning to things that maybe we haven't turned to before. Uh, As a chaplain who served in hospice settings and hospital settings, I have said many a prayer with people who don't consider themselves to be believers because they're now facing a situation that they just don't know what to do and they're looking for any kind of help they can get. So, So prayer is not just you know, for, for those of you who are already a Christian, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, there's probably still times that you would be open to the idea of pray. And if you find yourself in a situation that you just don't know what to do, and you've tried everything else, and you've asked the questions, well, why not pray? Why not pray? So that leads to another question, right, which is this. How should I pray? How should I pray? How am I going to pray in a way that God hears me? So I'm going I'm to tell you exactly how to pray in a way that can guarantee that God will answer your question. Ready? You gotta light three candles. Three candles. You gotta stand on one foot. You close your eyes. And you open up that Bible. Just random. You point. And then whatever your finger lands on, that's what you do. I'm kidding. 
that's not how we pray. I, 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 I joke, I've known people who, you know, that, that's not the way to get a biblical answer, right? Okay, what should I do about, well, I don't want to do that. Um, so, that's not the way we pray. Here's, here's how we pray. Watch a little kid. If you don't know how little kids ask for what they want, come spend 10 minutes at my house this week, all right? And you will watch somebody go through the same process that we go through when we pray. You'll see my little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Madison, and you'll hear her say either if she is, you know, um, polite and, and obedient, she'll say, Daddy, can you help me, please? You know, with whatever she's got going on. Now, if it's something a little bit more serious or she really, really wants it, she'll forego the daddy and she'll forego the please and she'll just say, I need help. I need help. Help me. Right? And this is, Jesus tells us that God is like a loving parent. Right? So watch a little child who has full faith and trust and confidence that their parents can do anything right? Because my daughter just assumes that I can do anything, right? And so she'll say, Daddy, help. She doesn't light three candles. She doesn't stand on one foot. She doesn't go through this really long, elaborate process of prayer. She doesn't open up my parents' manual and, you know, she just says, Daddy, I need help. Help me, please, Daddy. This is what prayer is all about. Jesus tells us that God is like a loving parent whom we can approach with boldness and the trust of a child with the parent. James reiterates that at the end of this verse. Here's what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. God gives generously to all without finding fault. In other words, God is not going to scold you for not having the answer. You don't need to be afraid that if you go to God and say, God, I don't know what to do in this situation, that God's going to say, how many times did I tell you? Right? That's not how God's going to respond. Um, God's not going to scold you for not having the answer. He's not going to check your tithing record. Right? If you go up and say, God, I need help with this, he's not going to say, well, I've been looking through your tithing record, and I'm not going to answer you. because That's not how God works. Uh, God's not going to, for those of you who aren't believers, God's not going to say, well, you didn't believe in me yesterday, so I don't know why you're asking for my help now. Right? Because God is a, is a loving parent who gives how? Generously. Generously to who? All without finding fault. James tells us this is what God is like. So we can approach God with boldness and with confidence and with faith and trust and expectation, knowing that He will give us what we ask for. That's what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James just sort of assumes that God answers prayers for wisdom. James assumes that God answers prayers for wisdom. That might lead to a couple of honest questions, right? Here's a couple. How? How does God give wisdom, and how will I know? How does God give wisdom, and how will I know that the answer that I've received is from God. Well, sometimes the answers come in extraordinary ways. Sometimes it's, it's an audible voice from God. Sometimes it's writing on the wall. Sometimes it, it's just in an inexplicable way that you absolutely know it's like a supernatural answer to your prayer for wisdom. I have a couple of stories like that of my own. I'm not going to share them now because those are exceptional. 
God's exceptional answers to prayers are just that. They're exceptions, usually. Usually, when God answers our prayer for wisdom, He answers in ordinary ways. In ordinary ways. You may be familiar with the parable of the flood. Parable of the flood. A man finds himself in a flooded neighborhood. He's up on top of his house, and he starts praying to God. He says, God, if you're up there, God, if you exist, can you please save me from this flood? A few minutes later, a boat comes trolling by the house. Hey, you want to hop in the boat? Guy says, no, 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 I'm good. I prayed that God would save me. Boat says, all right, well, see you later, buddy. Guy prays again and says, God, God, please get me out of this flood. God, please provide a way for me to escape this flood. Uh, a few minutes later, a helicopter comes flying over. And they drop down the ladders. Hey, come on up, buddy. He says, no, 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 no it's okay, I'm good. I, I prayed about it. God's going to save me. Helicopter flies on. Uh, guy eventually uh, gets washed away, finds himself standing at the pearly gates of heaven, uh, face-to-face, and says, God, I prayed for you to save me from the flood. God says, well, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? Right? The point here, God's intervention often comes through ordinary means. God's intervention, God's wisdom often comes through ordinary means. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from some people who are known for their, their walk with God, their, their, their prayer life, God's direction in their lives. Here's how they explain it to us. This one comes from E. Stanley Jones, a theologian and missionary to India. He says, God will guide us, but he won't override us. God will guide us, but he won't override us. He says, suppose a parent would dictate to a child minutely everything he is to do during the day. The child would be stunted. The parent must guide in such a manner that autonomous character capable of right decisions is produced. God does the same, right? As when our kids are very, very little, we have to tell them how to do every single little thing, right? We have to lay it all out very clearly. As they grow and as they mature, we start to trust them with more and more responsibility. We teach them as they grow not just what decisions to make, but how to make decisions. And so God's guidance with us as we mature in our faith moves along the same path. This is oftentimes why we'll see that, that people who are young believers or not believers or who are, who are young in their faith often seem to experience more miracles and direct intervention from God than people who have been walking with God for a long time. Because as we grow in maturity in our faith, God starts to give us more room, and he starts to guide us differently. He starts to allow us to make more decisions and guide more as an adult parent does to an adult child than a young parent does to a child who can't do anything on their own. God guides, but he doesn't always override. Here's another one. This is from A.T. Pearson. He's uh, the biographer of a man named George Mueller. George Mueller is a man famous for his prayer life, did incredible things building orphanages uh, across the pond. Um, Just if you ever have a chance to read uh, either his autobiography or biographies done about him, just an incredible man, incredible prayer life, seemed to just always be getting answers from God to prayer. Here's what A.T. Pearson, his biographer, said about um, the, the prayer process that was understood by George Mueller. He said this, God guides, not by a visible sign, but by swaying the judgment. To wait before Him, weighing candidly in the scales every consideration, is a frame of mind and heart in which one is fitted to be guided. And God touches the scales and makes the balance sway as He will. But our hands must be off 
the scales. And so in other words, according to the biographer of George Mueller, the way that God guides in prayer is not necessarily writing on the wall. It's not necessarily an audible voice telling you exactly what you must do, but it's in those quiet moments when we're weighing the decisions, when we're, when we're honestly thinking through the pros and the cons, and in our minds, somehow God just sort of gently tips the scales, and we just tend to know. And this is a process that has to, uh, it, it, we have to learn it over time. God's direction in our life as we grow in maturity, many of you who have been married for a long period of time, you know this, right? You can have an entire conversation with your spouse without ever saying a word, right? Something happens, and you get that look, and you know what that look means, right? You can have an entire conversation with your spouse. Uh, you know, kids are, kids are doing things you don't want them to hear, so once they learn to spell, you have to learn to, you know, talk in other ways they don't understand. You can have an entire conversation, uh, uh, you know, over your kids' heads without ever saying a word, just by, you know, looks and nods, and, you know, you, j- you just know. And, and as we grow in our relationship with God, as we grow in maturity and faith, we'll learn to, to hear how God speaks to us. But this takes time, and it takes practice. Uh, so if, if this is something you're interested in learning more about, if you want to know how to learn to hear from God in a way that He speaks to you, I've got a book recommendation. Uh, this is Hearing God by Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard uh, was a theologian and um, just a great teacher on discipleship and the spiritual life. He's got a whole book called Hearing God, and the quotes that I just read to you came from this book. And so if you want to learn more about how to walk with God, how to hear His voice, how to know that you're in His will, even when it's not spectacular writing on the wall, audible voice, ground-shaking type revelation, it's a great book. Um, But it's going to take time and practice to develop the skill of communication. But if you want to know more, I recommend that book. Uh, so now we're going to move into some practical tips, some practical tips for, for uh, testing the wisdom. How do I, how do I know that this, this idea that I got, I, so I'm facing the situation, I don't know what to do, I've asked what is the wise thing to do, I've prayed about it, here are some uh, ways that we can start to test the wisdom. Number one, does it line up with the rest of Scripture? Right? You get an idea, this is what I think I ought to do next, you ask yourself, does it line up with the rest of Scripture? Now, in order for you to answer this question, what does that sort of mean you have to know? Scriptures, right? You can't ask this question if you don't know what the Scriptures already say. This is why a personal, private Bible study life is so important. If you don't read the Scriptures on a regular basis, which is God's revelation and wisdom to us, then it's going to be difficult for you to weigh this this idea that you have against Scriptures, right? So so we need to know the Scriptures. So, So some things... You know, there are some things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. There are some things that are clear. So let's say, I'll give you an example. You're at a crossroads, right? And so the question you're asking is, should I cheat on my spouse? Right? And you've prayed about it. God, should I cheat on my spouse? Well, the answer, if the answer that you think you get from God is yes, you can be pretty clear that that's not from God because it's in violation of what God clearly teaches in the Scripture. But unless you're clearly studying the Scriptures, you're not going to necessarily know that. So if you get an answer that you think, well, is this an answer from God? Test it with the rest of the Scripture. Does it line up with the rest of the Scripture? Uh, you're, you're facing financial trouble. God, should I rob this bank? Right? If the answer that you get is yes, then you can be reasonably sure that that's not from God because God says do not steal. Right? Here's one guideline. Does it line up with the rest of Scripture? 
Now, there are lots of questions, though, that Scripture doesn't address directly, right? Should I take that new job? Should I take a new job? There's nothing in Scripture unless the job is a bank robber, right? So you can't, can't trick God, all right? But, but, it, but if, if the job is not something that's directly contradicted in Scripture, then Scripture's not going to give you a clear answer, yes or no. And so you might need to move on to question number two. What are the pros and cons? This is very similar to the question, what is the wise thing to do? Sit down and weigh the pros and the cons. That's what A.T. Pearson was talking about, to weigh in the balance the, the situation. What are the pros and the cons? Um, now, this is, a, this is a principle that works uh, for Christians and non-Christians alike. Even if you don't believe in God, this will help you come to the wise decision. Now, number two does not override number one, okay? Number two does not override number one. If the pros of robbing a bank outweigh the cons, let's say you're really smart and you know you can get away with it and not get caught, it still doesn't make it okay if it violates what the rest of Scripture says. But if it's within what Scripture allows, weighing the pros and the cons can be a good way to understand what God's wisdom is. You say, is this from God? And the pros seem to outweigh the cons? You can say, okay, this might be from God. Number three, do wise people I trust agree? You probably have some people in mind when you think of wise people that you can run this by. Uh, In Proverbs, we learn uh, that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Right? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Run it by some people that you trust, people that are wise. Kids, run it by your parents. Uh, run it by your pastor or your church elders or your doctor or your dentist or, or whatever. Run it by some people who are wise that you trust and, and see how that goes. Now, again, number three should never outweigh number one. Right? If, if people that you trust tell you to rob the bank, well, then you need to find new friends because they're not people that you can trust. Uh, but... If it's within what Scripture allows and wise people that you trust seem to agree with the inclination that you've got, you can be reasonably sure that the answer that you got was the wisdom that God wants for you to move with. Uh, Number four, does it feel right? Now, this one gets a little shaky, right? This gets a little subjective, Uh, but I still believe that it can be helpful. Now, again, number, uh, number four should never outweigh number one. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, especially if it violates number one. But number four can override number two, and it can override number three in rare circumstances. Usually, okay, most of the time, if something feels right, but the cons outweigh the pros and people that you trust think it's a bad idea. Generally, you should, you should go with that. But there are going to be some situations in life, there may be some situations in life where you feel something so strongly and it's within the bounds of Scripture that even though the cons outweigh the pros and even though people you trust disagree, it may still be the right thing to do because God is impressing on you that that's the right thing to do in that particular moment. I think of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Right? who studying the scriptures came to believe that what was happening in the church at that time was very contrary to God's will. And for him, the pros and the cons, the cons outweighed the pros 100 to 1. Right? He was probably going to cost him his life. It, 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 and it very likely would have had it not been for divine intervention. Um, people he trusted, very few people thought it was a good idea for him to challenge the entire Catholic Church at the time. But he believed it lined up with the rest of scripture and believed that it was what God wanted him to do. And so in that case... It, his, his feeling overrid two and three. So it can happen. I think of William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, slave abolitionist um, in Great Britain, 
who fought for the abolition of slavery, right? Uh, there was a lot of cons. Could it cost him his whole career? Nobody around him really thought this was the great idea, but he believed it was, was what God laid on his heart, and so he did it anyway. So sometimes God will impress on us something that we need to do in a situation, and if it fits with the rest of Scripture, it will be the right thing to do, even if it overrides point two and point three, but that's rare, right? That's rare. Usually, we are our own worst enemies. We can deceive ourselves worse than anybody else can deceive us. And so that's why it's good to have these other checks in place. But occasionally, God will impress something on us so strongly that it's the right thing to do even if nobody else agrees and even if it's going to cost us a whole lot. So there's some, some, some practical tips for testing the wisdom. Um, James goes on in verse 6. He says this. He talks about asking. Uh, when you ask, he writes, you must believe and not doubt. You must believe and not doubt. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Believe here means trust. You must trust, not doubt. Well, why would God say that? Good question. Here's what James says. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Right? If you throw something out into the, into the water, it has no guide of its own, no anchor. It's just tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. And if you, there's all, in ancient philosophy and literature and modern, there's all kinds of quotes and proverbs and, and little pithy sayings about um, the, 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 uh, the problem of indecision. Here's one. Um, the, uh, the medieval philosopher Maimonides, I think is how you pronounce it, Maimonides, here's what he said, the risk of a wrong decision is preferable to the terror of indecision. The risk of a wrong decision is preferable to the terror of indecision. In other words, sometimes not deciding is the worst thing you can do to, to just continue, should I do this or should I do this, should I do this or should I do this, and being blown about by indecision can actually be worse than just making a decision and having it be the wrong one. Um, this is why James says you got to ask in faith, you got to trust, because the one who doubts, right, you know this, in those periods of life where you have been tossed with doubt and you didn't know, indecision is like, it's, it's terrible, it's terrifying sometimes, and you can be so, you can just get seized up in indecision. Um, so that's what this means. James goes on. He says, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded in all they do. Now, here's what I don't believe James is saying. I don't believe James is saying that unless you have perfect faith when you pray, God won't answer you. And I say that because there are some people who teach that, who believe that that's what James is saying. I don't believe that's what James is saying. Because when I think of God as a loving parent, and I think of what a loving parent is like, I don't think of a loving parent being like, unless you have perfect love and faith and trust in me, I'm not going to give you lunch, right? Something that you need. When I think of how a loving parent interacts with their children, I, I think that withholding something from them, unless there's perfect obedience or perfect faith or perfect love, just doesn't make any sense. I think what God is saying here, what James is telling us, is that double-mindedness, our doubts, they don't prevent God from giving us what we need. They prevent us from receiving what God has to give us. Uh, I'll give you an example. We tend to ignore who we don't trust, right? Most of you probably have 
a news source that you believe is biased, a news source, a, a source of information that you don't think is credible. And so when you hear things from that source, you tend not to believe it. You tend to ignore it and just set it aside, right? If I don't trust you, I'm probably not going to put a whole lot of weight in terms of what you tell me to do in my life. And so this is why I think God says, if we're going to come to God, we need to trust that he has our best interest at heart. If we don't trust that he has our best interest at heart, we're going to have a really hard time receiving the wisdom that he has for us to carry out. So we need to trust that God really is the loving parent that Jesus tells us that he is, that Jesus shows us that he is, and then we can approach with childlike faith, like my little girl who says, Daddy, I need help. And when she says that, she knows she's going to get something, right, because she knows that I love her and I care for her. Even if that answer is no, right, she knows that I'm going to answer and, and that I've got her best interest at heart. And so we can ask for wisdom in faith. So in other words, the, 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 the principle for the second set of verses is this, don't be double-minded, decide. Don't be double-minded. Decide. Now, sometimes that means deciding not to act. Sometimes that means deciding to do nothing, right? But you've made a decision, an intentional decision to do nothing. So don't, don't waffle back and forth. At some point, you've got to put your foot down and decide either to do something or decide to do nothing and then stick with your decision until you get wisdom or guidance to move in a different direction. I believe Again, this is, this is based on my overall study of Scripture and my own personal life. This isn't necessarily how it applies to you. But I believe that God guides us best when we're moving, right? That, that if, we're, if we're just doing, you know, and we wake up, okay, God, should I go to McDonald's or Wendy's this morning? God, should I go to McDonald's or Wendy's this morning? God, should, I, should I go to Starbucks or Crumble this morning? Right, that God's not necessarily going to give us one. But if we start moving in a certain direction... It's easier to adjust course because we're already moving. This is just, just, just my experience and my study of the Scriptures. I, I don't see um, people waiting for God to direct every single step that they need to take. Now, certain times we need to stop and ask which way to go. But even then, if we don't get anything after a certain period of time, if we've been praying about it for hours or days or weeks and we still don't have an answer, sometimes that means that God's giving us room to decide on our own. And if we start moving in the wrong direction, we can trust that God will redirect don't be double-minded. Decide. And, and one of the things that helps us with this, most decisions are not life or death decisions. Some are. Most decisions that we're faced with are not life or death. And so we don't need to treat every decision like life, life or death, right? McDonald's or Wendy's, they're both going to kill you. <laughs> most decisions are not life or death. Most mistakes are recoverable. Most mistakes are recoverable. So don't be afraid of mistakes. Don't let the terror of, of thinking you're going to make a mistake leave you in the even worse position of indecision. Most mistakes are recoverable. And we often learn a lot from our mistakes. So don't let the, the, the chance of a mistake keep you from moving forward if you don't receive specific direction and guidance. Finally, don't let fear decide for you. Don't let fear decide for you. If you're making a decision because you're afraid of what's going to happen, that's usually the wrong decision because God is not the author of fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear. So if you're making a decision based on fear alone, it's probably the wrong decision. So don't be double-minded. Decide. Either decide to do something or decide intentionally not to do something and then be okay with it. And then if God needs to redirect you, trust that he will because as a loving parent, that's what parents do.
So in review, here's what James says. If you don't know what to do, ask. Ask what is the wise thing to do. If you still don't know, pray. Help me, God. Help me, please. Need some direction here. And then wait. Search the Scriptures. Trust that He'll answer your prayer. And then decide, right? If, if you've gone through all of these steps, now it doesn't mean that this is all going to happen within five minutes, right? It's not like, God, if you don't tell me no right now, uh, I'm going to rob the bank in five minutes, right? That's not how it works. Some decisions take some mulling over, some time to think about it, some time to pray. Um, but if you go through these, if you ask yourself, okay, what's the wise thing to do? You still don't know. You pray about it. God, what should I do in the situation? And then you weigh the pros and the cons, and you see if God just sort of tips one of the scales in your heart, and you just tend to know, and you, you run it by people that you trust, and, and uh, it seems to feel right to you, then, then move forward with it. You don't need to wait for the writing on the wall or the audible voice. And then decide. And you can, you can trust, even in the decision process, that, that if you make the wrong choice, God will still be there for you to help bring you back, to set you in the right direction. So if you don't know what to do, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know what to do, ask, pray, trust, and decide. This is faith that works when we don't know what to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, which have such practical advice for our lives, Father. We, we all need more wisdom. We need you to guide and direct our lives. You have done that for us in so many different ways. You've given us your scriptures, which we believe are your revelation to us in our lives and how we ought to live. You've given us your spirit that's in tune to you. You've taught us to pray. You've told us that you're a loving parent who, who, who wants the very best for us. And so, God, for, for those of us who are, who are searching right now for, for that next right step for our life, who are, who are facing a decision that we, we just don't know what to do, Father, I pray that you would grant wisdom. That as a loving parent, you would just, in whatever way you need to answer and however way you need to act to provide the answer, that you will tip the scales of their heart, that you would provide the guidance and direction. Father, I thank you that you are a loving, wonderful parent who has our best interests at heart and that we can trust you. That as a good and loving parent, you will give us the wisdom that we need to live in a way that pleases and honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.